Thank you all for coming. There's some um, particularly welcome faces I can spot at different points in the room, people I haven't seen for a very long time, and I'm, I'm very pleased that they've, they've come. And there's some people I've never seen before in my life, I think. I'm very pleased you've come, too. Um, and, and thank you for accommodating my um, desire to be at the LSE this evening. Peter Luizos uh, is somebody I worked with when I worked there in the late 80s, early 90s, and was a very uh, kind and supportive colleague uh, at the time. But also Peter was, um, in many ways, a role model for people like me whose fieldwork in the 80s got caught up in challenging political circumstances. Peter's own uh, work in Cyprus had been caught up in the, in the civil war there in, in the mid-1970s, and he had um, responded, I think, in an exemplary way, both, both in terms of short articles. There was an article in Man in the 80s called Intercommunal Violence in, in Cyprus, which was real, a, a, a model of um, intellectual, theoretical, and ethical common sense applied to a very, very difficult set of circumstances. And there was a book uh, called The Heart Grown Bitter, which remains one of the most uh, moving books written by uh, an anthropologist of that generation, where, a period when British anthropologists didn't do moving, to put it mildly, and, and Peter wore, it, wore his considerable heart, not on his sleeve, somewhere slightly more discreet than that, but he wrote a really, really wonderful book. So um, thank you for letting me fit that in, and I, yeah, start off by just saying that about Peter. Uh, what I'm going to talk to you today um, is, actually, it's, it's, a, it's a worked over bit of a draft from... Um, a larger book project I'm doing with this cluster of people that I've named there. They're not, well, they're kind of vaguely responsible for what follows, but they're not responsible for the particular argument that follows because they haven't seen it yet. Um, three or four years ago, uh, we got a grant on an ESRC research program on non-governmental public action, uh, which was um, basically a kind of development studies NGO type program, but. Myself and these colleagues from Sri Lanka and from other bits of the UK and Europe got involved in part because they were very keen on various sorts of collaborative arrangement and we were very keen on trying to get some collaborative research going with uh, people we were working with in particularly in universities in eastern Sri Lanka, which is a very badly affected area in the war, as, as David said in his introduction. So it's, it was... Um, and, the, and, the, and the thing grew... The budget didn't grow, but the number of people involved grew. So there were six of us. So what I'm trying to do at the moment is act as the kind of lead author on a single-authored monograph with six names on the cover. And there's been, rather a, there's been something of a hiatus between finishing the research, which was late 2008, 2000, early 2009, and actually beginning to get the thing together. So what follows is, is part of the throat-clearing section of the book. It's the kind of second chapter... Um, and the, uh, the public action, non-governmental public action, our project was on the role of religious organisations in eastern Sri Lanka during the years of war. That was our you know, official remit. And I guess we thought, in part, that a lot of it would be about things like world vision or Islamic relief, you know, in other words, uh, faith-based NGOs. But in fact, um, for one reason or another, that was a very minor part of what we did, and it actually became a, much more about Buddhist monks and Jesuits and mosque federations. In other words, more, 
straightforwardly conventional ideas of religious institutions, religious leaders in particular. And um, it was a collaborative thing with all sorts of people taking little bits of territory and running around and then talking to each other at regular intervals so that we were all more or less trying to do the same thing. But necessarily that meant that uh, it focuses very much on what I've called for the purposes of this talk public religion rather than um, a kind of building up from lots of like village level or very, very local level ethnography. It's relatively weak on that area of religiosity and it's much well, I don't know, less weak, I won't say stronger, it's much less weak in terms of um, people taking public leadership roles in the conflict, some of which are very remarkable and striking, as I, as I hope will become apparent. So that's um, the preamble. I'm going to do something I don't normally do these days, which is try and read the paper, because I've discovered that I'm even more undisciplined if I don't read in terms of time uh, and going off the point. So I'm going to try and read it in an effort to be dull but within time. Okay. Um, so in conceiving of... Uh, just get this thing, let's move on. A nice fuzzy map. In conceiving of a collaborative ethnography, which is what this, this is... One of our ideas was to explore ways in which we could combine viewpoints and perspectives in such a way as to avoid the limitations of more conventional ethnography. In this particular context, working in the eastern province of Sri Lanka, collaboration allowed us to move beyond a set of studies of particular religions and start to explore the similarities and differences between those traditions as they've emerged in the 30 years of civil war in the east. So from the start, um, we tried to make sense of this part of Sri Lanka as constituting a single religious field, albeit a field internally divided between a number of quite distinct and different religious traditions, each with its own cluster of institutions and practices, and to some extent with its own history. Now, the, the reasons for doing this, um, this is just give you the background and I'll stand up, I'll leave my script, I'll go over time uh, as promised. We're basically working in this bit, from Bataclo down to about here. These little colours are, that was government territory, that was rebel territory, the black lump, <coughs> and that was, the light grey was contested, uh, neither one nor the other territory, <laughs> at 2005-06, which is roughly when we started the project. Uh, no sooner had we started the project, which was during a period of official ceasefire, than the war itself broke out around here. And by 2007, the, the, the areas of rebel territory had all been taken by the government. So um, in the course of the project, the, the war kind of ended in this part of the country. But it didn't do it in quite the hideously nasty way that it did it further north in 2009, which was roughly the period when we were finishing the project. So it was a kind of water-peace transition period that we were actually carrying out the field work. And the areas, the one reason we didn't do, you know, we, if, if we were starting from scratch, we would have included this area too. But it was very, very obvious that something nasty was going to happen there. So we deliberately excluded it from our, from our plans from the start. And that actually turned out to be... Not a stupid decision at all. It's an area which is very evenly divided ethnically between Tamils, Muslims and Sinhala. Muslims in Sri Lanka are treated as a separate ethnic category as well as a separate religious category. Sinhala people are mostly Buddhist. Tamil people are mostly Hindus, but there are Tamil and Sinhala Christians, mostly Catholic, but with some Pentecostals. 
There's a lot of Muslims as well in some parts of the, the east, the, the southern bit, they're actually the majority, or they're the single largest group in the, in the population. And the singular settlements are basically on the inland side, often in new kind of government colonization schemes. And Tamils and Muslims are along the coastal belt, very densely populated coastal belt. So you've got a quite heterogeneous population, quite a complicated history. And in the course of the war, because of the East's mixed nature, it, it was a very, very um, strategically important part of the country. It was important for the, the rebel LTTE because it was you know, part of their vision of a unified Tamil-speaking state. But um, that was, to put it mildly, a cause of concern for the non-ethnically non Tamil people, the Muslims or the Sinhalese in the area. Too. So it made for actually a very nasty history, particularly in the early 90s in this kind of area. Um, very, very kind of nasty history. But the, the worst of that had, had passed by the time we were doing the research. And I can, you know, if there are questions about this, uh, I can return to them later. Okay. Now, the, the reasons for um, trying to look at this as a singular um, religious field, to look at the workings of religion, to see how, what, what kind of commonalities might have emerged across these different religious traditions. There's, there's, there's twofold. One is um, sort of a variant of the critique of methodological nationalism, which some of you would be familiar with from studies of nationalism, which is the problem with studies of nationalism is that you treat nations as self-evident categories, analytic objects, um, rather than looking at the work that goes into getting people to see the world as being self-evidently divided like that. Now, you can, you can transfer that kind of argument also to the anthropology of religion, although you have to be a bit careful about you, how you do it, because it's not like, um, however constructivist you want to be about the Catholic Church, for example, there is quite a lot of sort of in institutional density there that can't be explained away. So... Um, we, we, we're having to kind of play off between these, these two things. Now, in this respect, recent trends in the anthropology of religion, and also actually quite a lot of the literature on Sri Lanka, which emphasise particularity and difference, aren't obviously helpful. And even some of the more interesting efforts at comparison in, in, in recent anthropology of religion premise themselves on difference. So... Much of the running in, in the last decade or so has been coming from writers eager to establish the anthropology of Christianity as a special subfield with its distinctive problems and issues. And some of you would have been here last year when John Peel, in a magisterial reflection on the anthropology of world religions, with, with an even more magisterial title, the Bapsi Banu Marchinus of Winchester Lecture. Uh, I wish I worked at the University of Oxford and could attend things with names like that on a weekly basis. Uh, John Peel has highlighted the shortcomings of this approach. And he says, it's surely not only a student of the Yoruba or Nigeria or Africa where Islam and Christianity coexist and interact with each other who must believe that a sociology or anthropology of the world religions is what we need, not a series of discrete subspecialisms for each religion. And so in that lecture, um, Peel 
argues that understanding the linked but distinctive histories of Islam and Christianity in Nigeria is necessarily a comparative exercise in which the work of comparison is tempered by attention to shared history and shared context. To watch how these different streams, these different traditions intersect, is, is the term used, intersect with local circumstances. And so it's very much in that spirit that I've been trying to see what happens if we put Buddhism and Islam and Christianity and everything into the same analytical frame, uh, what comes out of it. The East itself is not the normal point of departure for analyses of Sri Lankan politics and religion. But this in itself might give us certain advantages in terms of what we're doing. Because the religious life of the East is relatively undocumented, we have a degree of freedom in choosing to adopt or ignore conventional accounts of religion in Sri Lanka. But because those accounts are, in many cases, so rich and insightful, and we have at least one very distinguished author of one of them sitting menacingly in the back row, um, we can begin to see what is distinctive about the particular setting in which we worked. The religious tradition which is best documented in Sri Lanka is not surprisingly Buddhism. And there are enough books even just on Buddhism and conflict or Buddhism and war in Sri Lanka to fill a small shelf of their own. But because Buddhists are a numerical minority in the districts in which we worked, we're allowed to start our argument elsewhere. And I'm going to start actually with uh, Hinduism in eastern Sri Lanka and only turn to Buddhism last of all in our survey of what we know already about religion and conflict in the East. And there was an element of self-conscious desire to displace the kind of received wisdom about Sri Lanka in choosing to work from from this point of view rather than from Colombo or Kandy or one of the more kind of obviously central places. And again, I personally feel it's it's, it's more than paid off, but you you can make your own decisions about that later. And I'm going to start actually not with... um, Oh, that is the East, by the way. It's just beautiful. It's a really, really stunningly beautiful part of the world, which has some part in my engagement with it in the last five or six years. I just really like being there. I'm not supposed to admit that in these circumstances, but still. Okay, I'm actually going to start with somebody else's work. In, in 1991, an American graduate student called Patricia Lawrence, and that's Patricia there, in 2008, um, arrived in Bataclo with a plan to carry out fieldwork in Tamil villages. Over the years that followed, she managed to complete a remarkable study of everyday life under conditions of extreme violence. The early 1990s were desperate years in the area immediately around the town of Batakalo. In 1990, as the Indian peacekeeping force withdrew from the country, the LTTE, the Tamil rebels, slipped in to take control of the villages on the land side of the Batakalo lagoon. Bataclo town and areas on the seaside of the lagoon were in the hands of government forces, including groups like the police paramilitary unit, the Special Task Force, who arrived fresh from a brutal but ultimately successful counterinsurgency operation against Sinhalese rebels, the, the JVP, in the south of the island. From June 1990, the two sides exchanged massacres and atrocities as the war broke out again. And from August, Muslims were drawn into the violence. And the figures from those months alone are are quite terrifying. 600 Sinhalese policemen were detained and, we think, killed by the LTTE in June of 1990. Over 100 Muslims were killed in the town of Katankudi in one single incident in August 1990. 184 Tamil villages in the village of Satrukondan were killed in September 1990, and so on and so on. Lawrence's 1997 PhD thesis tells two kinds of story. 
One concerns the way in which local people, especially women, took to village temples, especially temples devoted to the mother goddess Amun, as a source of solace and healing amidst the turmoil of the war. The other story documents the incidents and atrocities that punctuated her long stay in the field, trying as far as possible to establish exactly who was responsible, what exactly happened, and what kinds of follow-up occurred. The combination remains one of the most vivid and compelling accounts of people getting by in often quite extreme situations of fear and uncertainty. Families seeking news of the lost and disappeared come to see women like uh, Patricia's friend Sakturani, who, through possession and the agency of the goddess, are able to bring a sort of solace to those afflicted by the war. I've got chunks from Patricia's uh, thesis there, which I hope you can read, because I'm not going to read them out in the, in the interest of time. Sakturani, a woman in her mid-40s at the time of uh, Lawrence's fieldwork, cuts a figure familiar to students of popular religion in Sri Lanka. Like the female ecstatics in Obia Sacra's extraordinary Medusa's hair, she's someone who's transformed her own life and the lives of the people who come to her through her intense relationship with her chosen goddess. She found her goddess at a small temple on the edge of Batakolo town, and this is the same temple, in fact, that, that she was working at in those days. Uh, in those days, it was little more than a hut in the middle of a settlement of washerman caste families, many of them Christian. When we visited the same place in 2008 together, it had grown into something much more imposing with new buildings, lights, not to mention hints of Sanskrit in the well-attended Friday evening puja. The marginal space where marginal figures like Sakta Rami provided solace in the worst days of the war had in the intervening years grown into an established religious institution visited by Hindu pilgrims from elsewhere in the East, visitors from the diaspora, not to mention occasional members of the security forces, and so it was whispered, even incognito Muslim businessmen from the nearby town of Katankudi. We were told that 8,000 devotees had walked the firewalk in honour of the goddess at that year's recently completed temple festival. In the early 1990s, there had been a mere handful, eight, nine, ten people perhaps. The rumoured attendance of police and army at the temple was nothing new. In the 1990s, Sector Army was occasionally asked to help young Sinhalese men from the armed forces with their troubles. Another oracle in, in Lawrence's account was summoned by senior army commanders and government ministers to offer her vision of the future of the region. In the many cases that Lawrence documents in the closing chapters of her thesis, Muslims as well as Tamils bring their troubles to the oracles. And during her Sakturami's regular sessions, she tries to deal with the Muslim supplicants first so they can leave before anyone needs to unburden themselves on issues to do with the LTTE, which could obviously get them into trouble with members of the other ethnic group. Empowered by the goddess, Sakturami herself is free to transgress the normal disciplines of dress, gender, and comportment. The space she creates around her is one in which other people can cross boundaries of their own, between communities and between speech and silence. In one extraordinary moment, documented here, another oracle turned on the army in a moment of high drama, actually chasing the soldiers out of the temple at the height of a temple festival. Now, there's a particular configuration of space at work here, one in which allows people at, turn, at times to step outside the deadly constraints of everyday life. In this case, it's a space of demotic religion, where ordinary people bring their problems, ignoring, however briefly, the political forces that otherwise divide them. At points in her text, Lawrence tries to locate this new space in terms of the familiar division between the public and the domestic. In Bataclo in the early 90s, she says, 
Circumstances were so repressive that temple rituals were one of the very few active and viable social spaces outside the household. Later, she elaborates, Public roads and streets are dangerous spaces inside Sri Lanka's war zone. Saktarami counters the landscape of danger by reconstituting her domestic space at home as a public space for treating survivors of torture and a wide range of desperate problems in the local population, most of which are related to broken family connections and the disruption caused by war. So temples in this particular moment in the war can become safe, like domestic spaces to some extent, but unlike other public spaces, under the protection of the goddess. And a domestic space, like Saktarami's own house, where people bring their troubles and she sees people every day, can become like a temple and therefore a safe but public space in the hands of the skilled oracle. And what Lawrence is describing here is one version of life lived... uh, under the radar, to use uh, an idiom that other uh, people who've carried out ethnography in this area, notably my friend Timo Gaspik, uh, have used. Um, life lived under the radar, somewhere where people can forget the, uh, the, the threat of fear and surveillance that otherwise dominates the everyday. So the, 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 the popular Hindu religiosity, as it flourished uh, uh, moments in the war, flourishes very much as a place where people can step outside of the, the conflict itself, and where the divisions between communities, or even the divisions between the different uh, armed factions, can be temporarily suspended in these rather extraordinary spaces. Now, there are two types of Hindu temple in the East. Small village temples, many of them dedicated to the Aman goddess in various incarnations, and much bigger, more hierarchical temples, which bind together villages and castes across a temple territory. These are known as Taysom Kovils, temples that serve and constitute, uh, in the words of one recent book, a minor polity or a principality. Taysom is like Daisha, it's one of those state-nation-like South Asian words. Lawrence's work concentrates on developments within the smaller Amman temples. But others have worked with with these big Taysom Kovils. Mark Whitaker, an American anthropologist, worked in a village called Mandor, uh, in the early 1980s at the, the Sri Kantaswami Koville. And when Whitaker went back to Mandal, Mandal was in a village which was really badly affected by the war. There's all sorts of terrible things. It was absolutely in the heart of the contested area between the government and the LTTE on, on the land side of the lagoon. But when he returned in 1993, he was struck by the contrast between the ravaged landscape of war that was all around him with kind of destroyed and damaged buildings everywhere and torn up roads and shell holes and so forth. And the many signs of prosperity and rebuilding around the region's temples, that they would stand out from this landscape. New paint, new lights, new loudspeakers, new buildings, everything. And so if that landscape of destruction is the product of what Whitaker calls a certain kind of modernist politics, that's the politics of singular nationalism and Tamil counter-nationalism, with all the suffering and violence that this confrontation has brought about, then what's happening at the temple, he suggests, where old arguments about status and position are still being fought out in the Register of Honour, represents what he calls an alternative or non-modern politics. So just as the temple's have been able to stand at times outside the logic of colonial rule in his argument, so too they provided a place outside the logic of friend and enemy that fueled the war. In other words, normal temple politics 
continued. It's the only kind of politics that the LTTE didn't get involved with in Tamil areas. Normal temple politics was able to continue within the temple, but people from within the temple didn't, as it were, step out into other kinds of public sphere on the basis of what's going on. It's a very, very peculiar situation. So although the LTTE sought to establish as total control as possible over Tamil society, when it came to the temples of the East, it held back. It left them alone. There are incidents, there are moments and things that did happen, but the general pattern was that they didn't get involved with these temples, which are the, you know, they're the biggest institutions in Tamil public life, so it's very extraordinary that they were left alone. Religion is not part of the consciousness of the struggle, as one senior LTTE figure told Lawrence during her fieldwork. Now, in London and elsewhere in the Tamil diaspora, it was the complete opposite. The LTTE controlled the temples and used them as vehicles for fundraising and political work. But back in eastern Sri Lanka, the LTTE kept these central institutions of Tamil life as far as possible at arm's length. So this is a, a paradox or, or, or a conundrum that's emerged from what we know so far, and it's something that with a, a friend, Siddhartha Managuru, uh, we're in the process of trying to unravel by looking now at the politics of the Tamil diaspora temples in London, which uh, is a topic I owe a great deal to Nick Van here for what I know already about it. Okay, that's what it looks like, or one version of what it looks like from the point of view of the Tamil Hindu community. This next section is called Religion as Identity, and it concerns Muslims in the East. In December 2006, at the start of our field work, um, I spent a few day days in the small town of Samantarai with my uh, dear friend and colleague, uh, Professor Tudor Silva from Peridenia University. Samantarai is a, a predominantly Muslim settlement positioned halfway between the Tamil Muslim area of the East Coast and the town of Ampara, which is the centre of the Sinhalese-dominated parts of, of the district uh, inland. And Empire is also home to several large bases for different bits of the armed forces, including the Special Task Force. We're staying in Samantara because it's home to the official guest house of Southeastern University, a small, entirely Muslim institution with its main campus about 10 miles away on the coast, where Tudor and I were helping revise, I think unsuccessfully as it turned out, the sociology curriculum under the aegis of the World Bank. That's another story which we might go into on another occasion. Now, the first time that something was amiss came on the second day of our stay when we noticed that our dinner, which hadn't been that brilliant the first night, was being served not only later than usual, but also was considerably more modest than what we'd had the night before. We asked the, the housekeeper at the guest house what was going on, and he explained there's a problem getting fresh ingredients because the shops were closed. Why were the shops closed? Because a hartala, a shutdown strike, had been declared in the town. This was in response, this is one of many stories I can tell about ethnographers not noticing what's going on around them. But anyway, this was in response to an incident that had occurred while we were at the university on our first day in town. A truck driven by a Sinhalese man from Amparo, passing through the town, had hit and killed a pedestrian on its way through. The driver, realising his predicament, tried to drive off to escape the angry crowd that had swiftly assembled. Two young men on a motorbike chased him. When they overtook the truck, the bike was knocked over, killing one of the riders, but also jamming itself underneath the wheels. The, truck, the driver climbed out of the now immobile vehicle and ran for it, but his companion, who was also Sinhalese, was less lucky as he was trapped in the cab and the crowd torched the vehicle. It's a pretty serious incident. Now, this is the version of events we eventually pieced together, having entirely missed the original drama. 
By the time we learned of the heart cell, the air was thick with rumours and uh, anxiety. Busloads of Sinhalese thugs were on their way from Amparo, we were told. A major escalation of the violence seemed both inevitable and imminent. People were really, really worried. Or, and as Tudor said to me, don't worry, I'm sure the last thing they'll attack is a University of Peridenia vehicle, um, which I found mildly reassuring. Uh, there's another story about that as well, um, which maybe later I can tell you, but I won't do it now. At this point, the first set of rumours started to play off against another rather more reassuring story that was emerging. The members of the local mosque federation, we heard, were trying to contain the situation. They'd assembled in town almost immediately and had been attempting to broker a meeting with their counterparts, Buddhist monks, Christian priests, as well as senior policemen from Amparo. And over the days that followed, that was what happened. A meeting was indeed held. The situation was contained. Peace of a sort returned to Samantha. And what we discovered, of course, was this kind of brokerage, this kind of mediation work, was actually pretty standard in, in the East and had been over the years of conflict, that uh, Muslim leaders, Catholic leaders, Buddhist monks were used to taking this sort of role and working with the security forces when you got what you could call flashpoint situations like this one, situations which looked likely to escalate. It didn't always work. and There were many times and many things that happened that, that they were unable to do anything about. But nevertheless, insofar as anybody was able to do any, anything, it was these sorts of people. So this is one of the more extraordinary things that we discovered quite early on and we were able to kind of document more fully. Now, in his recent rather wonderful, uh, and uh, not to mention long, uh, ethnography of Muslims and Tamils in Sri Lanka's East Coast. Dennis McGilvray, he's done fieldwork in this area since the late 1960s, discusses the demise and authority of mosque trustees at the time of his original fieldwork in, in late 60s, early 70s. At that time, mosques were usually administered by hereditary trustees, matrilineally appointed, known as madakars. In the past, he was told, these trustees had wielded considerable influence in local community affairs. But their authority had, in the course of the 60s, been eroded from two principal directions. Alternative sources of knowledge and authority in Islamic matters had appeared from one direction, while party politics had intruded in its own divisive way from another. A decade on from McGilvery's earlier fieldworks, as the Muslims began to see them squeezed the cells squeezed between a state in the hands of single Buddhist nationalists and emerging militant groups of young Tamils eager to break away. So new forms of Muslim organisation began to take shape. So this is a mosque federation office in the town of Kartankudi. Before the 1980s, Muslim political leadership in Sri Lanka tended to be based in Colombo, even though it tried at times to speak on behalf of the big concentrations of Muslim population in the east of the country. As the conflict in general put most pressure on Muslims living in the East and the North, so the East became the source of new leaders and new political movements. The most important figure in this transition was a man called MHM Ashraf, a charismatic lawyer and politician from the East who founded the Sri Lanka Muslim Congress in the early 1980s and entered Parliament later in that decade. Ashraf served as a minister in the coalition led by Chandrika Kumaratunga in the 1990s, before dying in mysterious circumstances in a helicopter crash in 2000. And after his death, his party is split into various factions, each led by different political big men, or in one case a big woman, that's his, his um, widow, Furial Ashraf. So the party's kind of fragmented 
since the loss of the charismatic leader. Now, the story is complex and highly contested. So this is um, a definitive version. But this is, this is a version about the rise and fall of the SLNC and also of the Mosque Federations that we were told by a well-known Muslim activist from the town of Akhidapatu, who had been involved from the very, very start and been involved with Ashraf from the start. He tells the, the tale of the SLNC and, and of the rise of the Mosque Federations as a single narrative. The SLMC in its early days was primarily a youth organization, organized, as he put it, for both security and social reasons. In 1983, after government-backed attacks on Tamils in Colombo and elsewhere in the south, Tamil separatist groups, notably, notably a group called EPRLF, started to mobilize youth in this part of the east. And in the early days, a number of Muslim youth joined the predominantly Tamil groups. Muslims had no separate representation as Muslims in the all-party conference summoned by the government after the 83 violence. And as the SLMC took up the political challenge in the name of Eastern Muslims, so the new mosque federations started to be organized initially at village level. One of the concerns for the people founding these, these federations of mosque leaders was the need to keep their youth, as they saw it, out of the hands of the militant groups. A series of clashes between Tamil militants and Muslims in 1985, which set in motion the polarisation of the two groups for the next two decades, took care of that problem. This is uh, the mosque in Katankudi, where uh, over 100 Muslims were killed at Friday prayers by the, uh, the LTTE in 1990. Um, and it's a very, you know, if you visit Katankudi in any sort of slightly official way, this is the first place you get taken, this is the first thing you're shown. Um, in the political developments that followed that moment of definitive separation in the late 80s between Tamils and Muslims, something of a division of labor emerged in which Muslim politicians aligned with the SLMC looked after Muslim interests in the realm of national party politics, while the mosque organizations dealt with religious and social issues more locally. With each twist and turn of the conflict, the mosque federations grew in strength. In 2002, with the ceasefire between the government and the LTTE, and no place again at the table for the Muslims, the LTTE took on increasingly visible policing functions in the areas under their control, including the areas around places like Katankudi. And the mosque federations responded by urging their people to bring issues to them rather than to the LTTE, and by uniting different town-based federations into district-level federations, a bit like the newer, so, as we're in Oxford. What's important about this version of local history, though, was the way in which the activists at once stressed the coevality of the Muslim Congress, the political party, and the mosque federations, both born of the troubles of the 80s, and their striking divergence over subsequent decades. The mosque federations now present themselves as operating outside party politics and in the interests of the community as a whole. Obviously, this is a fiction to some extent. There's all sorts of interpenetration and communication going on. But nevertheless, in order to have the legit legitimacy they have to do the kind of say, mediation work that they do, they have to present themselves as being not like regular politics. And the politicians, in turn, are seen as inescapably individualistic and divisive in their activity. The moment of unity represented by the founding of the SLMC in the 1980s, now little more than a fading memory. So you get kind of two modalities of, of community organization amongst the Muslims. One, this kind of messy world of dirty politics, and the other, uh, kind of community-based, touchy-feely, solidary, unitary one around the mosque federations. 
I now move to the Catholics, who are a rather small part of the population, but had a disproportionate role. And I was showing this picture to, um, to David earlier, just because it's such a great picture. It's a, it's a visual metaphor, but I'm not sure what for. We can have perhaps... It's, it's, it's a group of Catholic priests making their way from Jaffna in the early years of the war, 1993. Uh, the way to do it was to be lowered onto this boat in a Weberian iron cage. Um, and then they would go back. And it comes from a wonderful book that was published, uh, actually I said 2012, it's actually 2011, by a man called Ben Bavink, who was a, a method, Dutch Methodist minister who lived in and around Jaffna and did extraordinary work all the way through the years of the war. And his diaries have recently been translated and published in English. Uh, and they're just wonderful, wonderful. And they, in many ways they exemplify what I'm going to say about the Catholic priests too, but the picture was too good. I didn't have any pictures of good Catholic priests, so I had to nick this one from the book. Um, we're moving on. We've moved on from uh, not getting dinner in Samantarai, and it's about a year later. I quote, before I can answer your question, I think we have first to discuss the change in the social mission of the priesthood after Vatican II. The conversation wasn't going entirely as planned. I was trying to discuss our ideas for some collaborative research with the Catholic NGO AHEAD, which is a kind of branch of Caritas International, in and around Batticolo. My interlocutor, a senior priest from the East, had a completely different agenda for the conversation, and he was winning. Before we even started to talk about ideas and research and collaboration, we needed first to get a proper understanding of the changing role of the Catholic priesthood since Vatican II, and for this we had to start with events and circumstances seemingly far away from the civil war in Sri Lanka and its causes. I was a little baffled by what seemed to be an irrelevant digression. We never got to talk about uh, collaboration in this conversation. It went on for over an hour with me failing. Um, you know, all these people could talk about power and authority in field work. I've never tried to interview senior Catholic priests. <laughs> That's all I can say. In retrospect, though, it's clear that our friend the priest was right to insist on his agenda for the conversation. To some extent, Catholic priests provided the leadership for the Tamil community that failed to materialise from Hindu institutions and Hindu organisations. The, the Mosque Federation people said one of the problems they had in the kind of mediation work they did when things went wrong was that they, they found it really difficult to find equivalent figures in the Tamil Hindu community. But the figures they did find tended to be Jesuits or other kinds of Catholic priests who did come forward and speak for the Tamils in general, not just for the Catholics. So there's a missing thing that we found when we were doing the work that we couldn't find Hindu leaders. And there are two sorts of explanation, both entirely plausible, um, and I'm now inclining to the second one of the first. One is, one is structural. The, 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 the nature of the big Hindu temples, like that big one I showed you on the slide, uh, the priests themselves are not, as it were, the leaders. The, the chief trustee would probably be the most important person. But they're not leaders in quite the same way as like a Catholic priest, is it? And the, those big temples are divided by caste and all sorts of stuff like that. So you don't get quite the same organic speaking for the community positions. So you've got that kind of explanation. There's another explanation, much more brutal and much more straightforward, which is that anybody who's put themselves forward as the leader of the Hindu community got shot. Um, either by the LTT or the army. It was an extremely dangerous thing to do. And that merely throws into relief just how striking a role certain Catholic priests did play. And not just Catholic, other kinds of Methodists and people like that too, but predominantly Catholic priests played in, in, in the course of the war. Now, Jock Stewart's 1992 monograph, Power and Religiosity in a Post-Colonial Setting, 
which is a great book, and it's also the great book on Catholicism in Sri Lanka, and it's the only book we have really to go on in, in, in terms of building. It's very much based on um, a story set within the Sinhalese parts of Sri Lanka, and it's a story of decline, um, and uh, one point he talks about a kind of entropic dis- dissolution of Catholic boundaries and Catholic institutions in a, a post-colonial setting where the power of the church has been eclipsed by particularly Buddhist nationalism, and where various kinds of um, popular healing practices, charismatic healing practices, which bridge between sort of Sinhalese Buddhist idioms and Catholic idioms and taking more and more sway. And generally, it's all pretty bad news for the church. What's striking is how different things look in the East, in, in the Tamil areas. Now, you know, that's not a criticism of Stirrett at all, because he's very, very clear that um, he's only talking about Sinhalese Catholics. And indeed, one of the great things about his book is it's one of the few books um, about religion which very kind of syst- is very systematically aware of what's happening in other religious traditions and other patterns of religious change. It's kind of inevitably because there's so much being said about what was happening in Buddhism at the time. And yet at the same time, you know, to go back to my opening remarks, it makes sense in the early 90s to write a book about Sinhalese Catholics as if they're in a different world from Ta- Tamil Catholics, although actually they're all part of the same organisation in one relatively small country. So there, there is a sort of puzzling aspect to this um, analytic that he's used as well. Just how different things in the East are, um, we can see from... This is quoting, actually, somebody who's still midway through her PhD, um, a student in Zurich, Deborah Johnson, who's been doing work on um, the role of the church in the North and the East uh, during the war, and, you know, is working, to some extent, developing themes that came out of our project. So her supervisor is Benedict Korf, who's one of the collaborators on the project, and I'm also involved on her PhD committee as well. So it's not like complete surprise that she's saying stuff that's music to our ears. She's a very smart but also very well-behaved PhD student, but that they were all so compliant. Um, so she describes uh, a history in which the, the, the very things in the, about the, the post-Vatican II priesthood that, in a sense, were problematic in the, in, in the Sinhalese areas, the loss of authority, because there was this new social mission which the parishioners didn't get. They just wanted people to tell them what to do. Um, that social mission, plus a little bit of liberation theology, plus rather extreme threats to the community, created a space for which ta- certain younger generation of Catholic priests could step into and take up this role of leadership. And I was talking to um, David Moss yesterday about Dalit uh, Christians in Sri Lanka, in, in South India, and he said, "Yeah, no, that's exactly the same story for low caste activist groups in South India. Again, particularly Jesuits, he said, uh, play very, very leading roles there because you know it's been scripted, as it were, since since the 1960s. And yet, that same script in a different political context on the other side of the island actually worked to kind of undermine their influence and authority. Here, it." it um, in many ways, boosted it. And one of the things that they could do in, in, 
Deborah Johnson's analysis, and I think it's fairly convincing, is, is cross boundaries, is mediate between groups. They can be the people who go to the army and go to the LTTE. And we had lots of people telling us stories about that. One of the things, I think it's not actually in this article of hers, which has just been published, but I've heard her talk about. One of the most extraordinary things they did in 2009, when the war was reaching its absolutely dreadful end, and the LTTE were holed up in this area, sealed off from humanitarian organizations, sealed off from journalists, sealed off from outsiders in general. The Catholic, a group of Catholic priests managed to get to the LTTE leadership crossing the front lines to tell them it was time to surrender so that people could be saved. This is in like March or April 2009. That's just a totally extraordinary story that they were able to do that. Um, and it, it's to do with... Uh, as I say, the, 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 partly the changing role, partly the circumstances that created the space for that. And also, even the kind of Catholic priest, she points out that bishops couldn't do things that priests could do. Because if a bishop did something, they would attract all sorts of political attention. So, for example, again, with the detention camps that were set up in 2009 at the end of the war, and nobody could get inside, it was Catholic priests were amongst the first people to get inside. But had a bishop tried to do that, it would have been national news, and he would have been prevented from doing it. But Priests were just important enough, but not too important. Visible enough, but not too, too visible to do it. So, it's precisely the... So, in a neat inversion of the situation described by Stirrett, I'm getting towards the end here, it's precisely the aspects of Catholicism that make it a potential object of suspicion for singular nationalists in the South, especially its foreign origins and its enduring strong transnational structure that help to make it a source of potential strength for those living in the shadow of LTTE-dominated Tamil nationalism. The new emphasis on the social engagement of the priesthood could occasionally produce as much puzzlement for the laity in the East as in the singular areas described by Stirrett, but more importantly, it provided priests with a space and a role to inhabit in the conflict. My interlocutor in that conversation was indeed right. We needed to un understand internal processes of change in the global Catholic Church if we were to understand the place that the Church occupied in the war in eastern Sri Lanka. So I come to the final section, which is about Buddhism. Never take a photograph of a white stupor against a white sky. But there is a, there is a, a Dagaba there in the top left-hand corner, rather... Interestingly, against the barbed wire, this is actually the front line in the war. This is a border village. On the right-hand side are paddy fields. Beyond the paddy fields are LTE-controlled Tamil villages. On the left-hand side, there's an army post here, and there's a Buddhist temple there. November 2008, two years on from the Samantarai incident, and myself and my friend, my patient, long-suffering friend, Tudor Silva, are experiencing the predictable downside of any collaborative enterprise. We had been dropped several hours earlier at a Buddhist temple in a border village, originally established as part of the Galoya scheme near Ampara town. Rain falls in sheets as we wait in the monk's lodging. Our vehicle left hours ago to collect another member of our research team from Southeastern University, and it hasn't returned. Somewhere down the road, the U.S. ambassador is opening a new USAID project. Maybe the delay has been caused by the security consequences of having foreign VIPs in the area. Whatever the reason, all that's happened since is the rain, which has been sheeting down for hours, turning the temple compound into a temporary pond. But the delay is not entirely bad, for it turns a useful interview with a, with a monk into a much, much longer, much more free-ranging discussion with him. He's an incomer to this area. 
Born in Gaul, this actually isn't him, but it is the same temple. Born in Gaul in the south of the country and ordained at Kegala, which is between Candy and Colombo. Uh, and he's, but he's worked in and around this village for decades. He's extremely open about his political connections. He's very close to former President Premadasa and also to J.R. Jayawardena, in whose honour he once edited a book. But he was also, somewhat unexpectedly, a great admirer and associate of the charismatic Muslim politician Ashraf, who I told you about earlier. He describes this particular village and its difficulties, including the years of intermittent attack from the LTTE, who controlled the Tamil areas on the other side of the village paddy fields. The village is poor and in dire need of development initiatives, with most households depending on employment of some sort with the government's security services, the civil guard, the police and the army. Uh, Rajesh Venugopal, who some of you know, did a really excellent PhD here at uh, QEH a couple of years ago. And one of the things he did was to show how much in these very poor rural areas the war had become the main source of employment for, for Sinhalese Villages, And we saw this very much. I mean, the, the monk reckoned that 75% of households in the village had at least one person either in the army or the police, or this guy's in something called the civil guards. It used to be called the home guards. Um, and that's basically what props up the economy and continues to prop up the economy uh, in these very poor, underdeveloped parts of the country. The monk sees himself as a central figure in village development efforts, especially brokering access to resources from the state and from external donors. The conversation ranges widely and sometimes loops back to go over topics for a second or third time. The rain continues to fall. He tells us about the work the temple organised after the 2004 tsunami, which devastated the Tamil and Muslim settlements along the coastline a few miles away. About a 1,000 Tamil villagers came and stayed in the village immediately after the tsunami. He got very friendly with them and now is often invited back to their villages for weddings and other big events. We've got quite a lot of versions of this sort of story. The monk himself doesn't speak Tamil, but enough Tamil people can manage a bit of Singhala for basic communication. He then decries the activities of hardline Singhala nationalist parties like the JVP and the JHU, which is this party of Buddhist monks that was elected to parliament in 2005. Buddhism, he says, doesn't 2004. Buddhism, he says, doesn't discriminate between races and ethnic groups. The Buddha ridiculed caste, so you simply can't discriminate. We're all human beings. That's the true principle. The problem comes from people in Colombo who never interact with Tamil people. If you interact with them, you realise some are good people, even if some are extremists. But these people who never meet them are the ones deciding how to treat them. It should be us living in the border villages who live with them who should be consulted. Now, there's a lot of contextualization and unpacking to do here, but we should first make clear that this monk, whose liberalism on the ethnic question seems strikingly at odds with our received idea of Sri Lankan Buddhist monks as staunch nationalism, nationalists, is by no means atypical. In an interview near Vavunia in the north in 2006, a monk in a, an equivalent northern border area complained to the Norwegian researcher Iselin Freudland, the JHU and the JVP are in Colombo. They call for war to end this problem. They don't know the situation at the border. Here the people don't want the war. The rich monks in Kandy aren't interested in helping out in the border areas. Or as a Buddhist lay activist in Ampara put it to Freudenland, it's the outsiders who make the problems. Local people here are very close. In um, the work of Kings, H.L. Uh, Senebrenner, which is the, the, the great book on 
Buddhism and Politics in Sri Lanka, has been published in the last 20 years. H.L. Senavaratna presents a broad picture of the changing position of Buddhist monks over a period of roughly 100 years. And he discerns two distinct agendas for the Buddhist Sangha in the 20th century. One is the narrowly nationalistic and intolerant political engagement, which has shaped so much of the post-independence history of the island. And the other is a more socially engaged, cosmopolitan and development-oriented vision of the role of the bhikkhu. The two are instantiated in his account in the two rival training institutions just outside Colombo, Vidya Lankara and Vidyodia. And the tragedy for Senavaratna is the long-term eclipse of the cosmopolitan, engaged, development-oriented Vidyodia position by the more kind of militantly nationalistic Vidya Lankara one. And that's the big narrative of his book. Now, the history of the Buddhist Sangha in the East doesn't fit into these neat categories very well. Rather, it's a story of initial expansion and consequent entanglement in which social service, community development, politics, and nationalism are all mixed together in different configurations and to different degrees. The main division is not between two competing visions of the monkhood, but between centre and periphery, Colombo or Kandy and the East. The expansion of the Sangha in the East has come in three distinct but overlapping modes. Most obviously, temples have been founded in new areas of Sinhalese settlement as part of official government colonization projects. But also, particular branches of the Sangha have at different times established themselves in areas with few Sinhalese settlers, often around sites of archaeological significance and claimed links to the sacred geography of the Buddhist chronicles, places like Serawila near uh, Trincomalee. But as well as these, since the 1930s, there have been concerted efforts by some sections of the Sangha to bring temples and schools to isolated single areas of the country. And looking at it in particular cases like this one, it's difficult to separate one of these modes from another. All three are kind of tied up together to different extents. But in all these cases, the same thing seems to have happened. To use Edmund Leach's words from Political Systems of Highland Burma, people uh, having moved into an area uh, and having to live with uh, neighbours of different ethnic, religious, cultural backgrounds are forced to have relations with each other. And out of these relationships with other communities, a kind of grudging tolerance has been born. Meanwhile, Buddhist monks of all persuasions have had much closer links to government and to the state than any other kind of religious leader. And despite frequent complaints about the perils of mixing politics and religion, have taken on various kinds of activist, development-focused role in the areas they settled. So this is just my last little bit. I'll try and whiz through very fast for you. Okay. What have we learned from this brief and incomplete survey of public religion in eastern Sri Lanka? Firstly, and most obviously, we need to be wary of essentialism. There's no singular Muslim or Christian or Catholic or Buddhist pattern in recent religious change. Um, and we go on to look at actually different kinds of uh, Muslim pattern in the, the next part of the book. So it's not a story that can be told in terms of the determining influence of single factors, whether these be religious, political, or even institutional. Instead, the religious traditions of the East, in conjunction with the wider histories of which they're a part, provide a field of possibilities within which some options have, op have opened up and flourished, like mosque federations or the social mission of the Catholic clergy, while others have been more muted or undeveloped. Nevertheless, there's a number of issues that emerge, and this is just the beginning of trying to sort this stuff out. There's quite a lot of work to do on this yet. Uh, in terms of a few rather um, approximate typological distinctions between the demotic and what we might call the official, or between the unbounded and the bounded, or between the public or visible and the domestic or invisible. 
And it's one of those sorts of distinctions which we can use to organise our understanding of what's happened. The shaky and unstable boundary between religion and politics is an issue that occupies the minds of all the people we met and talked to in our research. Uh, whatever people think about it, everybody to some extent subscribes to a normative view that there ought to be a boundary, even if it's impossible to actually maintain it a lot of the time. And it's worth again holding that in mind. So, for example, Lawrence's work on popular Hinduism is located very firmly at the demotic end of the con continuum. The oracles are classically marginal figures. The temples at which they work are small and low caste. Followers come from all religious and ethnic com communities. But this zone of popular religiosity doesn't produce public leaders capable of mediation and able to stand up in the face of external threats in the way that the mosque federations or the Catholic churches have produced public leaders. And as these examples suggest, what, they, what seems to be most effective at moments of crisis is a kind of leadership which in other circumstances is more often focused on the reproduction and policing of the boundaries between religious traditions, which of course have led to some extent to the creation of the crisis in the first place. The kind of religiosity that most obviously addresses the existential problems of the conflict is often the least bounded, but also the least effective as a ground for public action. That point is further reinforced by my final example, which is the new Pentecostal churches which have grown across Sri Lanka in recent years. Their modes of operation have been the source of huge public controversy at national level, especially from Buddhist nationalists who accuse them of practicing unethical conversion. In the East, they seem to have recruited most strongly not from Buddhists and Muslims, but from low-caste Hindus and from the more established Christian denominations. The classic Pentecostal conversion story hinges on healing, either of physical ailments or of the more inchoate sufferings of war and poverty. The afflicted take refuge in their new community of fellow believers, but that community does not seem as yet to provide a platform for any form of sustained public engagement. The new churches are notable for their absence from the citizens' committees and peace committees, which have done so much work during the years of war. Even more than the oracles studied by Lawrence, they represent that promised space outside the conflict. And I'll stop at that point.